Okay, Rabin. Okay, welcome. So this week, as you're soon going to see, there's not much to give the actual parasha class about, but there's a lot to talk about concerning what's going on this weekend. So just a brief, this week we have a double header. We read the last two Torah portions of the book of Exodus by Yakel Pekude. And just to briefly explain why we have double ups is because there is a total of 54 Torah portions. And in a lunar year, we, have, we don't have 54 Shabbatot. And not only that, but there are certain Shabbatot that fall out on holidays. And because they fall out on holidays, we don't read the regular annual cycle. We read the holiday portion. So therefore, we're not going to be able to finish by the time the cycle concludes by Simchat Torah at the end of Sukkot. We're not going to be ready to finish the five books of Moses. So therefore, there are certain Torah portions that double up. So we're still going to read only seven readings. However, the seven readings are going to be double the size so that we finish both Torah portions instead of one Torah portion. Now, this Torah portion basically is a connection to the last three Torah portions. So you have how God commanded Moses concerning building the tabernacle, the exact description of the vessels that were in the tabernacle, the, the beams that made up the walls, the curtains that made up the roofs, the poles that made up the courtyards, the clothing of the high priest, the clothing of the regular priest, everything was given in detail how God commanded it to Moses. Then you have how Moses commanded it to the Jewish people, and then you have how the Jewish people actually built it. So that's why I told you on these two Torah portions, there isn't much of a class to give, which you already didn't hear two weeks ago, three weeks ago, on, on the description of the tabernacle. What I do want to point out is that both in God's commanding it to Moses and then later in Moses commanding it to the Jewish people, we connect the Shabbat, the laws of not working on Shabbat, together with the building of the tabernacle. And there's, there's the reason is to teach us that even though building the tabernacle is a fundamental concept of Judaism, which is the ultimate goal to create from this world, which has potential evil and actual, uh, actualized evil, a jungle to turn it into the garden of God, to make for him a dwelling place and that everything should be transparent to his will. Now, with that being said, there's also another connection when the Torah says, thou shall not do any work on Shabbat, we don't know what the definition of work is. So we have to comb through the Torah and find where God uses that exact word, melacha, which means work, and to see how God describes it in the other word, verse. And then one of the 13 rules is that once God in the Torah, the Torah defines itself once, it becomes connected to all the other times where we use that word. Now, where do we define the word work 
we have it in the building of the tabernacle. Where over there, the word work comes with the description craftsmanship work. So now from here, we learn out five different um, properties, five different specific characteristics of what God defines as work. It has to be creative. It has to be, there's the, it has to be done purposefully. So, or it has to be constructive. So all of these things we learn out from the tabernacle. That's where it gives a description to the word work. So now we know how to extrapolate that when God says on Shabbat, thou shall not work, we understand what the word work means, which will answer the questions most people have. Why is it that you can walk in the Florida heat or the Florida rain to shul, even if it's a, a good 40 minute work, walk, but then to get into a car and then drive with an air conditioning to shul is prohibited. Why? Now we understand the reason because the definition of work is not whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, whether you're sweating or you're not sweating, but rather it has to do with the laws of creating. And a car has to do with fire, even electric is connected to fire. And therefore, it's actually in this week's Torah portion where it says that you shouldn't have, you shouldn't start a fire. That is a creativity, that's a creation while walking is not a creation, even if it's uncomfortable, even if you're sweating, even if you're, if you're um, uh, freezing or, or if you're boiling or whatever, wet, whatever it is that doesn't define itself as work. So the definition of work, once we understand the biblical definition of work, a lot of questions we have on why these things you could do on Shabbat, these things you can't do on Shabbat become self-understood. Self now, I do want to share with you that throughout the, the Jewish people on Shabbat, there is a custom that we purposely eat something hot on Shabbat morning. Now, the Ashkenazim call it cholent, the Sfardim call it adafina, in Hebrew you call it chamin, which means something warm. Why do we do that? And the answer is in the third verse of this week's Torah portion. The verse says, You shall not have a fire burning in your dwelling places on the day of Shabbat. Now, there were people called Sidukim, Vaizusim, and they purposely fought against any rabbinical interpretation. They said that we have to take the words of the Torah literally and not follow the principles that Moses brought down after the 40 days from Mount Sinai and taught us how to extrapolate and study the Torah. Therefore, they said, plain and simple, you're not allowed to have any type of fire in your house on the entire Shabbat. However, our sages extrapolate according to the rules, the 13 rules that Moses brought us from Mount Sinai, that what it means is you cannot start a fire, nor can you cook on Shabbat. However, something which is cooked before Shabbat, or at least two-thirds cooked before Shabbat, and you keep it on the fire from before Shabbat, is not a problem. Now, in order to declare that we, we accept the rabbinical teachings, which has its tradition all the way back to Moses, therefore we purposely have something on the fire um, throughout the Shabbat, from before Shabbat, whether it be in the crock pot or be on the stovetop with, with the, the Shabbat covering, whatever it is, 
we purposely are going to eat something warm that was on a fire on Shabbat, but it was put there from before Shabbat and it was already two thirds cooked before Shabbat. Hence, we purposely do that to declare that the people who do not accept the rabbinical interpretation of the Torah are wrong. So that's where this whole concept of eating chamin or adafina or cholent comes from. Now, then it goes on and repeats the entire things which we had in the last three Torah portions, all about how the tabernacle was made. We discussed it already. And like I shared, it won't be discussed it, that it would be beautiful if you want to go to Chabad.org and type into the search the word Mishkan, M-I-S-H-K-A-N, Mishkan. And you will see there that there is beautiful videos and there's beautiful pictures of exactly how it looked. Now, in the next Torah portion, the second part of the one that we're reading, the second Torah portion that we're reading today in connection, because we're reading the double header. So in that Torah portion, it also gives us the exact accounting of the, the gold, the silver, and the copper, and exactly what was brought, who did what, and how it was all made. And at the end, when it was made, they put it all together. They brought everything to Moses. Moses was commanded by God to put it together. Moses blessed the Jewish people, and finally the cloud of glory descended upon the tabernacle, and there was great joy. Now, why was there great joy when the, the uh, cloud which represented God's presence, um, descended upon the, the uh, tabernacle because the Jewish people were never sure whether they were forgiven for the golden calf. And because by the golden calf, God said, I will send my angel to lead you, but I will not be with you because if I'm with you and you're going to do a sin like that, I will annihilate you immediately. So therefore, let my angel go. Moses argued with God and said, do not, do not take us from here if you yourself will not lead us. And hence, the Jewish people never really knew if they were completely forgiven or not. When they saw that the tabernacle that they built for God, God descended into it, they knew that God forgave them for the golden calf and that God's presence returned to the Jewish people. Okay, this is in the shortest form, what's going on with the two Torah portions. Now, I wanna share with you some other things that's happening on this Shabbat, which is magnificent. Number one, anytime you finish one of the five books of Moses, that Shabbat has a special name and it's called Shabbat Chazak. Why? Because when you finish the last verse of the Torah portion, you say three times, chazak, chazak, venis chazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. So you have the triple language of strength. In other words, what we're saying is that we finish reading this, of the, this book of the five books of Moses. God grant us strength to go on to the next book. So this Shabbat already is significant in the fact that it's not one Torah portion, it's two Torah portions. It's already significant because the Shabbat Chazak, we complete one of the five books of Moses, the second book called Shemot, in English called Exodus. Now, there's another thing about the Shabbat that makes it magnificent, and that is that this Shabbat is the Shabbat before Rosh Chodesh. 
before the beginning of a lunar month. The Jewish calendar is based on the lunar cycle. Hence, this Shabbat is the Shabbat in which we bless the upcoming Rosh Chodesh. It's called Shabbat Mevarachim, the Shabbat which blesses. So right here, you have another powerful energy of blessing. Another thing is that not only is it the Shabbat which blesses the Rosh Chodesh, but Rosh Chodesh is on Sunday. Hence, Shabbat is a very special day, which is called Erev Rosh Chodesh, the eve before Rosh Chodesh. Now, why is that such a powerful, a powerful day? Because Rosh Chodesh is the birth of the new moon, which means the day before Rosh Chodesh is the day where the moon completely disappears. It's aligned in such a way that it reflects no light from the sun on earth. Now in Kabbalah, that is very, very, very powerful because it represents the total nullification, which this nullification itself is what gives us the power to experience unprecedented. And we're gonna talk about that today. We're gonna to talk about that today. Now, the last thing I want to share with you is, and I mentioned previously when Adasa mentioned about the double portion, I said actually we have three portions, it's because in the last couple of weeks, from about the last month, there was three times that we took out two Torahs, and this is going to be the fourth time we're going to take out two Torahs. It is called Arba Parshias, the four Torah portions. Now, what are these four Torah portions all about? So let's go through them quickly. I went through them as they were happening. The first time is the Shabbat in the beginning of the last month, we read about the half shekel, announcing to the Jewish people that it is time to prepare the half shekels, which has to be given annually to the Holy Temple. The one after that, the second of the four portions, was the Shabbat before Purim, where we read about the commandment, the story of how Amalek, for no reason, came out into the desert, attacked the Jewish people, and the commandment to remember, um, to remember what Amalek did. That's called Shabbos Zachor. Then last week we had Shabbat Para. Shabbat Para is the Shabbat of the cow. What does that mean? Well. Normally, the only tribe that had to be extremely careful, specifically the group within the tribe of Levi called the Kohanim, they have to always be careful. They're not allowed to go to funerals. They're not allowed to become impure because they have to work in the temple. However, all the other tribes, the other 11 and a half tribes didn't have to worry about that. They just didn't come to the temple. They weren't obligated to come serve in the temple. However, the one time that everyone has to be careful to become pure is Pesach, because Pesach, part of the Seder is to eat from the Passover sacrifice. The Passover sacrifice, once it becomes a sacrifice on the altar, it's called holy. You're not allowed to eat from the Passover sacrifice if you're impure. Hence, because everyone all of a sudden has a commandment at the same time to eat from the Passover sacrifice. Therefore, everyone has to be pure. 
there's whole laws if there's not, if, if the Jewish people are not pure, if certain people are not pure, but a majority are not pure, different laws on when you push off the Passover to or to those minorities that, that can't eat from it will bring it to the next month, which is Pesach Sheni. Or if everyone has it, then you have to do it impure. But the point is that the correct experience is that everyone should purify themselves in order that they should be able to eat from the Passover sacrifice while they're pure at the Passover Seder. Now, what is the process of self-purification when we talk about the spiritual laws of the Torah laws of impurity. So the, the law, the primary way of that, that can, that can purify the deepest impurities according to the Torah is the process of the red cow. So last week we read in the second Torah, the portion that talks about the red cow, how, what procedure has to be done, how you sprinkle from its ashes and water onto the person who's impure twice in a seven day in a seven-day time frame, time frame period, and that's how they become pure. So we read that to remind everyone it's time to become pure. What are we reading this week? This week we take out the second Torah and we read the first commandment that God gave the Jewish people in Egypt, and that was the law of the new moon. Hachodesh hazeh lachem. This month of Nisan is the first of the monthly cycle for the Jewish people. God showed Moses exactly how the moon looks by the birth of the new moon. And that was the first mitzvah. And then from there, God went on to talk about how every Jew in Egypt should take the, the lamb and in order to prepare himself for the Passover sacrifice and put the blood on the door and so forth and so on. However, this this Shabbat, because of that second Torah that we're going to take out and read the commandment of Rish Chodesh, therefore this Shabbat is called Shabbat HaChodesh, the Shabbat of the month, meaning the, the mitzvah, the commandment that God gave us about the Rish Chodesh. Now, why are we reading that this week? Because God told this to Moses right when the Jewish people were going out of Egypt. The Jewish people went out of Egypt in the Hebrew month of the Jewish calendar month of Nisan. Therefore, Nisan, when it says this is your first month, that's Nisan. Now, because Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the month of Nisan is going to begin on Sunday, and this is the Shabbat before the month of Nisan, hence we're going to read the mitzvah of the calendar starting in Nisan. That is all the stuff and all the amazing energies that's taking place in this Shabbat. The double portion, the second Torah, the Erev Rosh Chodesh, the Shabbat Mevarachim, and the Mitzvah of HaChodesh. Okay, now that we explained all of this, let's focus on what I sent out today that I was going to talk about. The word HaChodesh, we said means month. But the word comes from the word chadash, which means new. So I want to introduce for you a very interesting teaching of our sages. When God created his world and he chose his world, and that's, that's this world that he created in six days and the seventh day he rested, he established Rosh Hashanah. 
So Rosh Hashanah is in six months from this Sunday. It's called Tishrei, the month of Tishrei. However, and, and just to be clear, from Adam with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way until the year 2448, when the Jewish people left Egypt, there was only one cycle. It was the annual cycle that started on the first day of Tishrei, which is Rosh Hashanah, like we say in our Rosh Hashanah prayers, that this is the day that God created the world. Okay. Then the sages go on to say, but once he chose specifically Jacob and his sons, that's when he established for them the monthly cycle. So the Jewish calendar is, is unique. It's the only calendar in which the first month is not the first month of the, of the, of, is not the new year. In other words, we just said that the month of Nisan is the first of the 12 months. And that's why whenever in the Torah, you're going to see it says it was the first month in the, in the, the, the eighth day, whatever it says, the first month is not talking about the high holiday month. It's talking about the Passover month, which means that the Jewish year, the Jewish year, when we say 5,781, we are not talking about from the month of Passover. We're talking about from creation, which is the high holidays, which means that the Jewish New Year is actually the first day of the seventh month of the year, which is, which is unique. It's hard to wrap your head around. God moved over. So from Adam until Moses, Rosh Hashanah was the first day of the first month of the year because Tishrei was the first month. However, once the Egypt came along, the, the exodus from Egypt came along, that's when God moved over that the first month is no more the month of the high holidays, but six months later, it's the first day of the month of Nisan in which the Jewish people were taken out of Egypt. So now we need to understand on a mystical level, what is this all about? So to understand what this is all about, I wanna share with you what the word year means and what the word month means. The word year in Hebrew is Shana. The word Shana, we are taught, really comes from the word Shinuyim, changes. In other words, what defines an annual cycle that it is the complete cycle of all changes, the four seasons, everything that takes place in a cycle takes place in the year cycle, and then it starts over and it repeats the cycle. The word, like I said before, the word chodesh, which means month, actually comes from the word chadash, which means new. So you have the Rosh Hashanah, which represents the cycle of changes that just is secular, it goes round and round and round. And then you have the cycle of Chodesh, which is all about new. So much so that according to the teachings of Kabbalah, even though physically it seems to be that the moon is just repeating the orbit, 
And because of this, the, the situation where the sun is situated, the moon is situated, the earth is situated, it seems to be that it's always just the same cycle. The moon is moving closer and therefore there's a reflection from the sun off the moon and onto the earth. And hence we have the moon building and building and building, reaching the full moon. And then it starts going away. And then because it starts going away, it gets smaller, smaller, and smaller until it reaches complete, complete darkness. And then it starts over. So it seems to be also secular. It seems to be the same thing over and over and over. But according to Kabbalah, it's not. Every time the moon orbits, it experiences on a spiritual level an unprecedented light. Now, with that being said, let us understand what does it mean that why was it that the first commandment that God gave Moses to tell the Jewish people in Egypt was to set up this new cycle, which is called Chodesh, which means new. Why? Why is that happening? Now, in order to understand this, we need to understand what King Solomon said. King Solomon says that there is nothing new under the sun. Comes along the Zohar, the Holy Zohar, the Kabbalah, and it says, under the sun, there's nothing new. But above the sun, there is something new. What does that mean? So in order to understand this, I want to share with you the difference between the covenant that God made with Noah and the covenant, the covenant that God made with the Jewish people and Moses at Mount Sinai. The covenant of the rainbow that God made with Noah is that because the flood completely, completely broke all the laws of nature, and the orbits and everything went into a, a, a confusion. So if you read the verse, God promises and makes a covenant with Noah that he will never interrupt again the cycle of nature as he did by the flood. Okay. Then comes along a whole new covenant that's taking place with the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Now, if you want to just indulge with me a little bit into the Kabbalah, the, the, the covenant that God made with Noah has to do with the 10 utterances in Genesis. And God said, let there be. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the waters gather. And God said, let the waters give forth. And let God said, let the earth give forth. And God said, let the trees give forth. All the utterances of creation... God made a covenant with, with Noah never again to interrupt and disrupt the 10 utterances of creation, which make up the laws of nature. However, with Moses at Mount Sinai and the Jewish people, God made the covenant with the 10 commandments different. What's the difference between the 10 commandments and the 10 utterances? And the answer is the first word of the 10 utterances is Bereshit. Now, Bereshit starts with a bet, which is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The 10 commandments starts with the word Anochi, I, Anochi. The word Anochi starts with the 
Aleph, the first letter. That means that the utterances of creation all begins with the second letter. The second letter represents the infinite light. However, the Aleph of Anochi, I am God, your God, represents not the light, but greater than that, it represents the source of light. It represents the essence of God. Now, let's go back to what King Solomon said. Under the sun, mystically speaking, that means that which comes from the infinite light. That which comes from the infinite light is the 10 utterances of Genesis, which is the DNA of mother nature. So there is nothing new in mother nature. All the great breakthroughs that we're making, medical, technology, all of that is nothing new in nature. We're just uncovering powers which exist within nature. And therefore, nothing we're doing has created anything new. We're experiencing new experiences within the incredible powers that God put into nature, but we have not created anything new. We still only have our senses. We have not created a new sense. We have not created a new law of nature. We've just learned how to manipulate and how to reveal and how to emphasize and how to synthesize that which nature had all along. So therefore, in the world of science, in the world of nature, there is nothing that we are creating new. We're just discovering what we had no idea. We're just connecting to the potency of nature, which we were not able to connect with before. Hence, what King Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new from the bet of Bereshit until this very day. Everything that God installed within Mother Nature, he installed through the infinite light, and there's nothing new. Now let's go to the Ten Commandments, the Torah. The Ten Commandments, the Torah, is all about the Aleph, which comes before the Bet. So let's quote again what the Zohar says. There's nothing new under the sun, but there is new above the sun, meaning beyond the infinite light. Now with this, we can understand what it is that God gave us when he began the power of Rosh Chodesh and he gave it to us to be able to establish the Jewish calendar, which is all based on the lunar orbit, which is all based on the word Chodesh, which is all based on the word Chadash, new creativity. Now, what does that mean? What that means is that within the light, within the defined laws of nature, within all that was created in the first day fermented throughout the first six days, there is nothing new. However, every single one of us, because we have within us a soul, and the soul is defined as truly a piece of God above, not a, excuse me, I'm so sorry, not a piece of the light, the infinite light, but a piece of God himself. 
Now let's define what the word new means in God's realm. That which exists and has a beginning and an end has a definitive description is not new. You can stretch it to new, to new depths, widths, lengths, heights, but it's not new. The definition of new is that which surpasses beginning, end, and description. Now, when we go ahead and learn Torah, when we go ahead and do mitzvot, what are we doing? So I shared with you previously that the word mitzvah means connection. It's the connection, it's the connection between us and God, not God's light, but God himself. In other words, we're not here to create new in the sense of creating a different set of mother nature. No. What we're here to do is to bring that which is omnipotent and infinitive into nature. That's the definition of new. Now, I want to get practical with this. On a practical level, something that we all experience every day, we have to pray every day, three times a day, on holidays, four times a day, Shabbat, four times a day, Yom Kippur, five times a day. And it's the same words. The weekday prayers are the exact same words every day, three times a day. Hence, the question is, how can one say that prayer is the most intimate moment with God if we're saying the same words every single day? So too with studying Torah. How can we say that studying Torah it should be new in your eyes every day when it's the same Torah for the last 3,300 and something years, 20 something years. How can that be? So this question of where is the newness in Torah and in my relationship to God, to understand that, I want to share with you a book that was written by a man called Michael Gerber, I actually worked with him personally. He actually helped Chabad rabbis get established, learn how to, you know, reestablish and organize the, the Chabad houses. And he wrote a book called E-Myth Revisited. He's known as a small business guru, Michael Gerber, E-Myth Revisited. Now, when he was working with me, what he wanted was that everything I do should have a manual and do it always the same way. And, you know, he was challenging us. You serve coffee at your classes. Please make me a manual of how you make your, how you make your coffee. And we were like, you got to be kidding. Michael, really? That's what you want from us? Yes, that's what I want from you. And when I would have my one-on-ones with him, I would tell him, it just doesn't work for me that way. And I just shared with him, carpool. Every day I take a different route just because I can't stand taking the same route over and over and over again. And he was telling me, you will never be free to your creativity until 
you learn to do things exactly the same way every day. And I couldn't understand, what are you talking about? Now what I learned is that he's absolutely right. Why? Because creativity is the spirituality of the person. The physicality of the person, we now know that the human body, everybody, the animals' bodies, but the human body is a creature of habit. From the way the amygdala monitors the brain to the way the, the, the body cells through the nerves demand certain things from the brain, it's all about homeostasis. In other words, it's only when you are in a pattern, it's only when you are experiencing habitual behavior, you do things exactly the same way, so that your body, let's be more specific, your reptilian brain and your limbic brain will leave you alone to be able to experience your frontal cortex. Because when the reptilian brain is feeling unsafe or when the limbic system is feeling thrown off its homeostasis, you will not be able to experience the human gift of the frontal cortex. Only when everything else is soothed, assured, comfortable, fu functioning on a subconscious level, just robotically, then we are free to use the frontal cortex of our brain. Now, I want to just share with you something personal, which I experienced thanks to Michael Gerber. So for 25 years, I've been giving out a weekly email. Now, the weekly email has different parts to it. There is the upcoming week to let people know if there's a holiday coming up, the Shabbat, what Torah portion, what services, if there's a Rosh Chodesh. Then there's a brief synopsis of the Torah portion of that week. Then there was a story. Then there is a short, quick two sayings. Then there is the upcoming occasions, whose birthdays of the members, whose uh, anniversaries, whose yard sites. Then there is the meme. Then there is the thank you list of people who gave donations that week. And then there is that front page article, which is an insight. Now, all the other stuff is mechanical for me. I have to just do it every single year. I mean, obviously in 25 years, I don't rewrite the synapses. I just copy paste the synapses from the first time I did it. The same thing with the calendar. Every year, the same thing. I just have to change the days, the times, and that's it. The birthdays, it's all in the system. Copy, paste. Um, the thank you, make a report from my, from my program that, you know, in which I input all the donations and just build a report, copy, paste. The MIM, I usually do it all six in the beginning of the week. Just pick one and insert it. So from that perspective, all of that is mechanical. The part that I personally become alive in is that front article, something new. Where am I today with this week's Torah portion? How do I make it personal, relevant, and yet mystical? 
That's what I love. However, this process used to take me so long with that. Sometimes I'll start with this, sometimes I'll start with that, and sometimes this. Only when I actually made a manual with a flowchart of exactly what I do, and then I started doing it every single week the same way, got everything done, and then I was able to deal with the part I love. Suddenly, this huge process became a short process, done, and now let's experience creativity. So what I'm sharing with you is that specifically when we have habitual prayers, that our lips almost know how to move on its own, can we then be free to enter into our frontal cortex and introduce creativity of experience and feelings to God? So if prayer is a personal thank you, a personal request, a personal sharing of your present experience with God, that's never the same. But you're never free. We are never free to do that until we have the habitual patterns of prayer flowing almost on its own from the reptilian brain and from the limbic system. Only when that is almost on autopilot are you then free to experience creativity to bring out the pure oil, the pure essence of our soul, that which lies above the sun. So when we talk about organized religion being so monotonous and so secular and so what's going on, understand that the body part of religion, that which your body has to do is supposed to be habitual because it's supposed to blend with the science of our body. And the science of our body demands homeostasis. It demands habitual patterns. So much so that Maimonides writes in his laws about health, he writes, change your, your simple daily cycle and you've now become susceptible to ailment, to sickness, to illness. Hence, the whole process of newness is only after the annual cycle, Mother Nature has been set in place. And even the annual cycle of the Torah, even the habitual patterns of what we do every morning, the brachot we make, the way our kitchen runs, the way our week runs, the way our Shabbat runs, only when that becomes almost mechanical, can we then be free to introduce that which is above the sun, that which is creative, that which is new, that which is alive? So it isn't the pronunciation and the oratory movements of the mouth of prayer in which the newness exists, but it's the feelings it's that of the human mind, the specific frontal cortex, the seed of our soul where newness happens. Hence, there is never 
two of my classes that are exactly the same. But why? Last year, I spoke about this exact Torah portion, this exact special portion of the monthly cycle, the HaChodesh, and yet it's different because I am different. And I am different not in my reptilian brain, not in my limbic system. My reptilian brain cannot be different from the moment that my heartbeat started. The reptilian brain cannot decide, I want to try something new. It can't. I would die if that happened. But the newness is in the frontal cortex. It's in the soul. It's in my deeper emotional and spiritual and intellectual connection with God. That's what God's telling Moses. I'm giving you the Torah and I'm giving you the opportunity not just to submerge yourself into the habitual, but by doing that, you will free yourself to experience hachodesh hazeh lachem, the opportunity of true creativity, true spiritual connection beyond the infinite light, which is the habitual pattern of mother nature. But rather, don't just deal with the book, connect with the author of the book. The book never changes, but the author of the book, the reader of the book, the relationship between the reader and the author of the book will always change. And that's what we learn now. Thank you.